Well, last Sunday night, we looked at the first seven chapters of Leviticus. I think that's the most chapters I've ever covered in a single sermon. We're about to top that tonight. So those first seven chapters outline the five major sacrifices that God prescribed for Old Testament worshipers, and four of them are extremely bloody sacrifices, and the procedure for killing them and and offering them on the altar is described in Leviticus in careful and trenchant detail, and Scripture is so grisly in the description of how these sacrifices were to be carried out that uh, Darlene complained that my sermon last Sunday night nauseated her. (laughs) And full transparency here, I think that might not be the first time my preaching had that effect on her. But as I told her, imagine if you had to be in the tabernacle when those animals were being offered, it was a sweltering tent in the wilderness, and you'd be worshiping with a massive congregation of the people of God while animal sacrifices were being slaughtered and burnt in large numbers and no air conditioning. And as we discussed last week, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was by God's design supposed to be gruesome and bloody because it was purposely as terrifyingly horrible as righteousness would permit, because the sacrifices were designed to be one long graphic depiction of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And the vivid reality of so much blood and butchery no doubt would overwhelm the senses of the worshipers and made it impossible to miss the point that without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Or in the words of Leviticus 17.11, it is the blood that makes the atonement. And so again, as we stressed last week, that's the theme that dominates the entire book of Leviticus, that atonement is costly and the price of it is blood. I mentioned last week that the word blood appears in Leviticus 88 times. Seven of those speak of blood relatives, so we won't count those, but there are still 81 explicit references to blood that point to the need for atonement and ceremonial cleanness. And and the stark and shocking imagery of so much blood serves as a reminder of the loathsome repugnance of sin and the cause and effect connection between sin and death. And in fact, the word sin occurs in Leviticus 84 times. So this truth that sin is utterly sinful is a running theme also throughout the book. Uh, and so I'm not going to go into that and cover as much of it as I, as I really plan to do tonight because I don't want to nauseate anyone tonight, least of all Darlene. But beginning in chapter 8, where we pick it up tonight, these reminders of the exceeding sinfulness of sin are overlaid and ultimately eclipsed by what is even a greater theme in Leviticus, and it's the theme of God's ineffable, unattainable, perfect holiness. And the key expression that stresses this theme is repeated a number of times across the chapters of Leviticus. You can find it, first of all, in Leviticus 11.44, where God says, "'Set yourselves apart as holy, for I am holy.'" And then again in Leviticus 19, verse 2, we'll, we'll look at this verse in a little more depth later tonight, but Leviticus 19, verse 2, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. 
And then slightly different words, but the same idea in Leviticus 20, verse 7, set yourselves apart as holy and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. And then chapter 20, verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and I have separated you and the pe- from the peoples to be mine. So notice the standard. I'm God, I'm holy, so you be holy as well. Jesus himself stressed that same standard in his Sermon on the Mount, that God's absolutely perfect righteousness is the only righteousness, the the one standard of holiness that is acceptable before the heavenly judge. In Jesus' words, Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then to stress how rigorous that demand is, much of Leviticus is then packed with laws and priestly instructions that spell out practical measures designed to symbolize and and serve as reminders of the high standard of holiness that God requires of His people. You have dietary laws, laws governing ceremonial cleanness, rules about daily life, all of them meticulous instructions on how to be set apart as holy unto God. And when you lay the precepts of the law over all of that graphic imagery about the exceeding sinfulness of sin, this ought to have been a signal to anyone who was paying attention that there is no hope for any sinner who wants to atone for his own sin or or earn God's favor with good works. You can't do that. The cost of atonement is a price no sinner could ever afford to pay, and the standard of righteousness by which we are judged is infinitely higher than any of us could ever hope to attain, which, in other words, means the law serves this purpose. It eliminates any possible hope that sinners could ever redeem themselves. The law shows us the lethal sinfulness of sin. It teaches us about the unattainable requirements of divine righteousness, and it therefore informs us of our need for a Savior. That's the lesson, and that's what Paul meant in Galatians 3.24 when he said, the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. We can't earn justification by works. That is a clear implication of the sacrificial system. If you can read the book of Leviticus and not get that message, you've missed the point, really. The law points us to Christ by eliminating every other desperate hope for the forgiveness of our sins. The law itself can't free us from our sins or make us righteous because we are already sinners, and all the law can ever do for a sinner is to threaten him with condemnation. And that will either drive you into the arms of Christ as Savior, or if you refuse to believe it, it will intensify your guilt. Nothing good ever comes from the law for sinners who persist in unrepentant unbelief. The law is not a remedy for sin. But God's law is an expression of His holiness. The law is not a bad thing, Paul says. It's a good thing. It expresses the holiness of God, and it reminds us that God is holy, and these reminders of the holiness of God are therefore woven into the very fabric of the Levitical system. And so let me show you this tonight with another really quick survey. Last week when we walked through the whole book of Leviticus in about five minutes, I gave you a broad outline of the, of the text. Tonight, 
I want to do something similar. We're going to do a quick survey of the individual chapters of Leviticus, starting with chapter 8, where we start tonight. And, and I want to give you a one or two sentence summary of each chapter. And we'll focus on the theme of God's holiness, because that is the theme. And I said a one or two sentence. I'm probably going to go over that on a few of these chapters because they're important. But I want you to see how perfectly these twin themes, the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God, twin themes that fit alongside one another in the book of Leviticus. So here is how chapters 8 through 27 go. In fact, turn, turn to chapter 8 in your Bibles and try to flip through these chapters as I mentioned them, because I am going to give you more than two sentences per chapter. I can't help myself. Chapters 8 and 9 are narrative. They describe the consecration of Aaron and his sons, and, and it shows their work as priests. And here you have a description of how the offerings that God had prescribed in those first five chapters were implemented for the very first time. And in fact, look at the end of chapter 9. It concludes with fire from heaven in a stunning display of the glory of God, which signified the Lord's acceptance of the sacrifice that Aaron and his sons had offered. The last verse and a half in chapter 9 says this, "...the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar, and all the people saw it and shouted and fell on their faces." So this is a miraculous display of God's glory as fire came supernaturally and destroyed the sacrifice. And then chapter 10 immediately follows with a contrast. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10 say, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and put fire in them. Then they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them. And they died before Yahweh. So it's a, it's a deliberate contrast. In the first case, the fire from heaven consumed the offering. In the second case, the fire from heaven consumed the priests. And remember, all of the lessons here point us to the holiness of God. And in verse 3, Moses reminds Aaron, uh, and remember, Aaron just saw his two sons burnt up. Moses reminds him of what Yahweh had said. Verse 3, then Moses said to Aaron, it is what Yahweh spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And here you see in the most dramatic possible way the exceeding sinfulness of sin, what seems like a small sin. They offered strange fire. They weren't deliberately trying to blaspheme. They were just careless. But it's a sin, and the exceeding sinfulness of that sin then is contrasted with the ineffable holiness of God. And this is one of the key moments in the whole book of Leviticus, the rest of chapter 10 draws hard lines of contrast between things that are holy and things that are profane. For example, verses 8 through 10, Yahweh then spoke to Aaron, saying, "'Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so as to separate between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean.'" And so those lines of separation between what's holy and what's profane epitomizes the whole point of the Levitical law. While the law does highlight the extreme sinfulness of sin, it also guards the sacred holiness of God. And so, fittingly, 
what follows in chapters 11 through 15 are some specific laws that govern holiness. These include dietary laws that delineate between clean and unclean animals in chapter 11. Chapter 12, the shortest chapter in the book, is, it gives some rules that, about purity related to childbirth. Chapters 13 and 14 are about disease and leprosy in particular. And chapter 15 covers the issue of personal hygiene and purity. This is where the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness, comes from, I think. In fact, that aphorism is a kind of paraphrase of this chapter, which actually talks about matters that I would prefer not to discuss in mixed company. But it is about personal hygiene and cleanliness and how that pertains to the holiness of God. And then chapter 16 gives instructions for observing the Day of Atonement. My plan, by the way, is to come back two weeks from tonight and look at this chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement a little more closely. We'll focus on that chapter. But then chapter 17 picks up with more laws about holiness. Chapters 17 through 20 give rules that apply to all the people, and chapters 21 and 22 consist of laws that apply in a particular way to the priests. The laws that apply to all of the people are not just dietary and ceremonial ordinances, but many of these rules, and especially those that govern sexual relations, are immutable moral principles. I have more to say that. In fact, let me pause there and talk about the difference between the moral and ceremonial precepts of Moses' law. I realize there are a few students of Scripture, and, and I think we even have some seminary students probably, who don't like the idea of dividing the law of God into three parts, civil and ceremonial and moral precepts. But without getting into a seminary-level argument about the threefold division of the law, let me just say that it's my contention that the difference between the immutable moral principles of the law and the dietary and ceremonial laws that governed only the nation of Israel, the difference is generally obvious. While Scripture doesn't give us lists in categories like that, the dietary laws are clear, then they might be changed or abrogated, and in fact, they were, I'll talk about that. Moral laws are fixed and unchanging because they pertain to values that are as unchangeable as God Himself. They are reflections of His character. The moral precepts show the holy character of God. The dietary laws are simply lessons about uh, that, that reminded Old Testament Israel that they are God's chosen people, and they were unlike any other nation, and so even their diet was like anyone else, unlike anyone else. And in fact, I mentioned that the dietary laws can change, and they did. In fact, they did change under the ministry of Christ, and Scripture explicitly tells us that. In Mark 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach, and it goes into the sewer. And Mark then adds this sort of doctrinal observation at the end of that's Jesus' statement. Whatever goes in you just goes into your stomach and then into the sewer, so it can't defile you. And then Mark adds this, thus he declared all foods clean. In other words, in one fell swoop, swoop, Jesus annulled all of the kosher dietary laws for New Testament believers. 
That's why we can eat ham. We can eat other things that were, continued, that were considered unclean in the Old Testament. And, and you sometimes, I bring this up because it's important, you sometimes hear people today trying to justify sexual perversion, and they'll sometime, sometimes point out, well, the, the same Levitical law that declares homosexuality and cross-dressing abominable also says you can't eat ham or shellfish. And so they ask, aren't you, aren't you Christians being grossly inconsistent when you condemn homosexuality while you're eating ham sandwiches? That's an ignorant argument from someone who is clueless about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus personally annulled the dietary laws. He, fu- he fulfilled all of the ceremonial statutes. The civil ordinances were specifically given uniquely to national Israel. And although we might recognize and affirm the, the general equity even of those civil laws, they don't apply to the church in the same way they applied to Old Testament Israel. Here's what I mean. Some of the civil legislation in the Old Testament prescribed punishments up to and including death for capital infractions. But the church has no authority to execute any, anyone or, or to mete out any punishment that's worse than excommunication. That's, that's the worst the church can do in terms of punishment. So we're not, we're not functioning under those civil laws. So how, how then do you distinguish between moral and civil and ceremonial laws? And again, I, I contend that in most cases, the, the distinctions are actually obvious. Jesus himself indicated that it ought to be obvious that Moses' law contained principles that had varying degrees of importance. He didn't regard the law as all one inviolable, unchangeable thing, because in Matthew 23, he scolded the Pharisees, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness.'" So, notice what he's saying there. He's implying that the Pharisees ought to have been able to distinguish between what is timeless and immutable and that which was merely ceremonial. And it is our duty to make those distinctions as well, because in the very next verse, it's where Jesus says to them, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You know, gnats were the smallest of all the unclean creatures. Camels were some of the largest. And Jesus was acknowledging that the Pharisees assiduously avoided the tiniest, most insignificant sins, but they had no compunctions about violating the weightiest precepts of the law, and he scolded them for that. So he is recognizing and expects us to recognize that some laws carry more weight than others, and some sins are worse than others. Your people say all the time, well, it's a sin, everything's a sin, it's all equal. It's not, and Jesus made that point in John 19 when he told Pilate that Judas's sin was worse than Pilate's. So in short, All of these precepts don't necessarily carry the same weight, and some of them aren't even any longer in force in the New Testament, and it's our duty to study Scripture well and discern the difference, and I want to show you that. Let's consider two of the Levitical precepts as a test case. Leviticus 18.23 says, "'You shall not lie with any animal to be defiled with it, 
nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Meanwhile, Leviticus 11 verse 12 says, whatever the water doesn't, whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. In other words, for example, shellfish and catfish were deemed unclean. These were not to be eaten in Old Testament Israel. And so, it is true that the Levitical law prohibited both shellfish and bestiality. So, are we justified in concluding then that these must therefore be exactly equivalent moral issues? And the answer to that is, of course not. We can't pretend that there is no difference in the gravity and scope of those two precepts. To suggest that eating fried catfish is a sin on the same scale as fornicating with animals is like suggesting, frankly, that there's no difference between gnats and camels. The dietary restrictions in Leviticus are self-evidently not as weighty as sins like child sacrifice or crimes like arson or any kind of perverted sexual practice. These are clearly eternal moral precepts, and they're forbidden in the New Testament in more general terms, but they're still in force. So, to pretend that all of those sins are morally equivalent is to muddle and thus diminish what Scripture teaches us about God's holiness. And furthermore, to impose the Old Testament's dietary laws on people is to contradict Jesus, because Mark seven nineteen expressly says that Jesus categorically declared all foods clean. And if you want to insist on the legal equivalency of all the Levitical laws, if you refuse to see any valid distinction between the law's ceremonial precepts and its eternal moral values, you have basically reduced all of the moral precepts of Moses' law to complete insignificance. And that, in fact, is precisely the aim of some people who try to use that argument to justify homosexuality. It's an attack on holiness. And holiness is the very principle that the book of Leviticus was given to teach us about. Anyway, I hope you see how the theme of holiness dominates all of these chapters. And, and although Leviticus began with seven chapters devoted to the subject of animal sacrifices, atonement for sin, and the ugliness of sin, by the time you finish chapter 22, it's obvious that the dominant theme of Levit- Leviticus looks beyond sin in order to teach us about sanctification and purity and the perfect holiness of God. So, let me finish this speedy survey. We were, I told you it would be more than two sentences, and I'm sorry, but we were just dealing with chapter 22. Chapter 23 introduces rules that govern the Sabbaths and feast days. There are seven feast days enumerated here, and they are the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. That consumes that whole chapter, and then chapters 24 and 25 are dominated by civil laws. Chapter 26 is a series of blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience, and then the final chapter is about the holiness of solemn vows and the foolishness of making rash vows. And that's what Leviticus covers. Every conceivable aspect of practical holiness 
in private life, in civil life, and in public worship, it's all touched on in one way or another, but the theme that ties all of it together is holiness. And so that's what we want to focus on. So turn back with me, if you will, to chapter 19. I chose this chapter. I read some of these verses earlier, but I picked this one because the first two verses of this chapter are actually a summary of the central message of the whole book of Leviticus in Yahweh's own words. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. And that verse is an echo of an earlier verse that I've already highlighted for you, Leviticus 10.3, immediately after the death of Nadab and Abihu, when Moses reminds Aaron that Yahweh spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And the point is, God jealously guards His holiness, and I want to explore that concept with you. God is holy. His name is holy. Isaiah 57, verse 15, thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. Now, notice what that's saying. God's very name is holy. The translators of the Legacy Standard Bible, and actually all the other modern English versions, universally treat that word holy in that verse as a proper noun. Because, and, and you know that because they've capitalized it. Because the point here is that the word holy is one of the names God goes by. You find that same truth stressed throughout Scripture. In Psalm 111, verse 9, we read this, He has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and fearsome is His name. Now, obviously, all of God's names are holy and fearsome names, and and that's why the third commandment you know, forbids us to take the name of the Lord in vain. But in Isaiah 57, verse 15, the verse I just read to you, the point is actually more specific than that. Thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy. That verse is saying that holiness is so much the essence of who God is and what He is like that the expression itself, holy, is one of His proper names. Isaiah had personally seen the one high and lifted up, you know, and, and, and Isaiah saw the seraphim above him calling out to one another, saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They're saying one of the names of God when they say that, holy, holy, holy. That's, that's a description of who God is. It's also a, a, a statement of His name. And in the New Testament, The Apostle John described a similar scene in heaven with four living creatures around the throne who day and night do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That's Revelation 4, 8. And all of that stresses the fact that holiness is the primary attribute of God. This is His supreme perfection. All of the attributes of God of course, are linked, and, and they're actually one attribute with several facets. But if you want to sum it all up in one word the best you can, that word is holy. Charles Hodge says, holiness is a general term for the moral excellence of God. Thomas Watson wrote, holiness is the most sparkling jewel in his crown. 
It's the name by which he is known. And that is precisely the point the book of Leviticus aims to fix permanently in our hearts, that God is holy. His very name is holy. The Hebrew word for holy, which is used two times in Leviticus 19, verse 2, the Hebrew word is kadash, which means distinct or separate or different, and it refers to God's otherness, that it suggests that God is absolutely unlike His creatures. He is exalted above us in infinite majesty, and it also speaks of His utter separateness from sin and from evil. And that goes to the heart of what we mean when we speak about the holiness of God. He is completely set apart from evil. He is infinitely above it. He is perfectly antithetical to it. John 1 verse 5, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. In Habakkuk 1.13, the prophet, speaking to God, says, your eyes are too pure to see evil, and you cannot look on mischief. In 1 Peter 1.15, the apostle quotes from the book of Leviticus here, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And what he means there is that as the people of God, we must be different. We must be set apart. We must be holy unto God and, and in a special way, separated from sin. That's where the doctrine of God's holiness begins to be, for us, most intensely personal and practical. God is holy, and those who don't regard Him as holy are worshiping a different God, which is what God means when He says, holy is the name He goes by. And and that is why all man-made religion, including all the empty, mindless, heartless ritual that is offered in the name of Yahweh, all bad religion is an utter abomination because it fails to do justice to the holy, holiness of God. God's holiness, by the way, is incomparable to anything in our experience. There's no analogy for it. God's holiness is incomparable to anything else in existence anywhere, which is, this is the thing that sets God apart from His creation. Exodus 15:11 says, who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And then 1 Samuel 2.2 actually answers that question. It says, there is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And so, to put it simply, no one and nothing can legitimately be compared to the holiness of God, because His holiness is unlike anything else in the universe. It's unspeakable in human language. It is unfathomable to the human mind. It is inexpressibly higher than anything else we could possibly imagine. And therefore, to understand God's holiness is to... I lost my place. To understand God's holiness is to have such an exalted view of God that our whole worldview ought to be shaped by it. Once you truly see that God is holy, humanism is out of the question. If modern evangelicals actually understood the first thing about the holiness of God, all of our man-centered religion would immediately, instantly fall by the wayside. If the individual basking in self-pity or, or grappling with mundane frustrations would seriously contemplate the holiness of God, 
that person's life and attitude would instantly change. Which, here's what I'm saying, this is the remedy for virtually everything that makes modern society so dysfunctional, the holiness of God. If people could actually begin to grasp the truth of what God means when He says, I, Yahweh, your God am holy. If we could just understand the meaning of that, even in the most superficial way, that would cure all of our selfishness. It would correct the majority of our wrong thinking. It would answer every wrong philosophy. It would put an end to all the foolishness of human religion, including most of the nonsense that goes by the name Christian these days. All the show business religion and all of the flashy smoke and light show performances that are labeled YouTube, labeled worship on YouTube right now, that's not true worship at all, because it doesn't do justice to the holiness of God. It's entertainment for human audiences. The book of Leviticus sets forth three ways that we can properly respond to the holiness of God. So, if you're taking notes, I want you to get this much of my outline, three points. I'll try to make it easy for you to get these three points. Here are three ways a proper understanding of God's holiness would help frame our worship and our worldview and our whole attitude. Number one, God's holiness incites fear. God's holiness incites fear. Five times scattered through the book of Leviticus, you find the expression, you shall fear your God. You're still in Leviticus 19, right? Leviticus 19, 19 verse 2, that's our key verse, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And then notice the very next words are, every one of you shall fear. And then it goes on to say specifically, fear your mother and your father and keep my Sabbaths. Those, of course, are two of the Ten Commandments. So the fear that's being prescribed there is reverence for God and His law. And the end of the verse acknowledges that. What is it that provokes this fear? The knowledge that I, Yahweh, am your God. Right after he says, I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And similarly, verse 30 commands us to cultivate this reverential kind of fear. Keep my Sabbaths and fear my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. And then two times here in chapter 19, in verses 14 and 32... Both those verses, we are told as explicitly as possible, you shall fear your God, I am Yahweh. In Leviticus 25, 17, God also tells his people, you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh, your God. So the one true object of proper holy fear is ultimately only God himself. Jesus said so, Luke 2, or Luke 12, rather, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, my friends, do not fear those who will kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast you in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's talking about the fear of God. Why would we ever fear anyone else? We, we tend to be intimidated, you know, by those who mock the God of Scripture and, and spurn His holiness in favor of their man-made idols. Why are we afraid of that? Why do we fear men? God's holiness is reason enough to fear Him and Him alone. Revelation 15, 4, "'Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy.'" 
And if you really grasp the truth of God's holiness, fear will be your first instant response. Once you really grasp what holiness is, it will make you fear. It's inevitable. In fact, almost any time in Scripture, when people get a glimpse of the holiness of God, their immediate response is fear. And fear in this context is not just some euphemism for uh, some kind of formal religiosity. It's not, it's not merely reverence. It is a reverential fear, but it isn't just this formal religious attitude, nor is it a craven fear, although it does involve a kind of holy terror. Remember, this is one of the lessons of the Levitical sacrifices. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a healthy and holy fear of God's displeasure. You may have heard me in past messages point out that scripture, in Scripture, whenever someone is confronted with a true understanding of God's holiness and everything that it entails, the almost universal response is that they fall on their face in fear. And sometimes they literally pass out. They lapse into unconsciousness. When Isaiah saw that vision of God high and lifted up, he said, "'Woe is me, for I am ruined.'" The vision of God's holiness was so profound that all Isaiah could think of was his own sin, and he was certain that he was doomed. When Samson's parents had an encounter with the Lord, Samson's father said to his wife, "'We will surely die because we've seen God.'" And when it finally dawned on Peter, who he was dealing with, Luke 5, verse 8 says, He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Notice, in every case, the focus is on their sin. You see the holiness of God. The thing that slaps you in the face is the reality of your own sin. The apostle John, when he was a very old man, saw a heavenly vision of Christ in his glory in Revelation 1. Remember, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John had a familiarity with Jesus that exceeded that of any other living person at the time. But one glimpse of Christ in glory, confronted with the the bright reality of His infinite holiness in all of its absolute purity, and John says, when I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man. That's Revelation 1.17. His fear literally put him in a kind of coma. And when we truly understand what God's holiness means, His perfect spotless purity, His infinitely powerful wrath against sinners, His utter hatred for sin, when you perceive that, we ought to respond with similar feelings. There's a fear involved in that, a legitimate fear. Reverence, yes, but there's also a legitimate degree of genuine fear and dread And if you've never tasted that fear, perhaps you haven't begun to understand the utter holiness of God. Remember, earlier I quoted Psalm 111, verse 9, holy and fearsome is His name. The very next words in that psalm say, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. If you've never known the fear of God, if your very soul has never trembled in the presence of God's holiness, Scripture says you're not a wise person. But while the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, it is by no means the end of wisdom. Our response when we see God's holiness and when we experience the fear of God 
it shouldn't be loathing and revulsion for him, but a true and holy fear of God ought to prompt us to love and worship him. And so, here's a second way the truth of God's holiness should shape how we think and what we do. If you're taking notes, first, God's holiness incites fear. Second, God's holiness inspires worship. God's holiness inspires worship. Here's another fact to bear in mind about all of those occasions when people in the Bible fall on their faces before God in a state of catatonic fear because of His holiness. Almost every time that happens, the Lord responds by calming those fears. Revelation 1.17 is that verse where the aged apostle falls at the glorified feet of Christ, nearly comatose with terror, and before he even finishes the verse where he describes how he fell as if dead, John adds this, he placed his right hand on me saying, do not fear. And in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel sees a vision. The voice of the Lord speaks to him. Daniel basically passes out. Verse 9, as soon as I heard the sound of his words, Daniel says, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face on the ground. But then Daniel says, behold, a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees, and he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. When Peter's fishing nets were overwhelmed with fishes, and he was overwhelmed by the recognition of Jesus' holiness, and he begged Jesus to depart from him because he was a sinful man, according to Luke 5.10, Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. 1 John 4.18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And what happens once you grasp the holiness of God and and you feel that wave of fear, love overtakes and overcomes that sense of fear in anyone who genuinely trembles at the holiness of God. We become captivated by the beauty of holiness. God's holiness becomes an object for our worship and our adoration. And in fact, God's holiness is the supreme reason He deserves our worship. Psalm 99 verse 3 says, let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is He. Verse 5 adds this, exalt Yahweh our God and worship at the footstool of His feet, holy is He. Verse 9 echoes the call to worship, exalt Yahweh our God and worship at His holy mountain, for holy is Yahweh our God. Psalm 30 verse 4, sing praise to Yahweh, you His holy ones, and give thanks for the remembrance of of His holiness. Exodus 15, 11, who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders? And it asks that question, who is like you, O God? We've already seen the answer to that question is nobody and nothing in the universe approaches the infinite glory of God's holiness. That is why He alone deserves our worship. Or to say it another way, the reason idolatry is so supremely sinful is that it fixes the heart on something that is not holy, and that inevitably breeds all kinds of sin and wickedness. Romans 1 traces the way that happens. You know, people don't glorify God as God, so they become vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts are darkened, and they change the glory of the incorruptible God for images made like corruptible men and four-footed beasts and creeping things, and from there they descend into all kinds of sin and filth. 
And our whole culture, you've seen it in the past decade, has raced through every step of that decline. But when God in His holiness becomes the object of our highest praise, the opposite effect occurs. A love for holiness transforms the way we think and the way we act, and God's holiness begins to color our character so that we become holy too. And that brings us to our third point. How does God's holiness shape our outlook and our actions? Point one, God's holiness incites fear. Point two, God's holiness inspires worship. Here's point three. God's holiness invites imitation. God's holiness invites imitation. Now, there's an irony here because on the one hand, as we've seen repeatedly, God's holiness is incomparable and unapproachable. I've used the word ineffable, which means it's too great to even be conceived by the human mind. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, I read it earlier, there is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there's no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God, which is to say God stands alone in holiness. No one is actually holy like God is holy. And yet, that's the command in our key text, Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Holiness is one of God's communicable attributes, which means it's one of those attributes that we as creatures who are made in God's image can share and participate in and reflect in our own character. And in fact, it's something we should strive to imitate. And not only that, holiness is something we are repeatedly commanded to cultivate in our lives. We can never be perfect with it like God is. We'll never be holy like He is, but that's the goal to pursue. That's the prize to press on for. Leviticus 11.44, I am Yahweh your God, therefore set yourselves apart as holy and be holy for I am holy. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God did not call us to impurity, but to holiness. Deuteronomy 14, 2, you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Be holy. And everything that is wrapped up in the meaning of that word holiness is included in those commands. We are to be different. We are to be set apart. We are to be separate from sin, pure in heart, holy unto the Lord. We are His special possession, and therefore He would have us be holy. In fact, Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Banner of Truth publishes a little book with the title, No Holiness, No Heaven. And the point is not to suggest that your holiness can earn you a place in heaven, You can't add anything to the infinite merit of Christ's atoning work on your behalf. You certainly cannot merit heaven by any attempt to be holy. However, those who would enter heaven must be fit for heaven, and that means if you're a true Christian, you should be growing in Christ-like holiness, because holiness is what fits us for heaven. And if you're truly redeemed, God is already transforming you more perfectly into the likeness of Christ by gradual steps, you know, from glory to glory, and the fruit of God's redemptive work in you 
always includes a degree of holiness, increasing holiness, as you mature spiritually. That's what sanctification means. We're becoming holy. We are holy, and we're becoming more holy. And furthermore, if your longing is to spend eternity with God in heaven, you ought to be actively cultivating personal holiness here and now. That should be your heart's desire. How how could you possibly understand God's holiness, the glory of it, and worship Him in light of His holiness, and yet not desire to have holiness in your own heart and life? that, That would be a contradiction. It would be a living contradiction of your testimony. And in fact, here's an interesting principle that is frequently cited in Scripture. You become like whatever you worship. Whatever you worship the most, whatever you love the most, that's going to have an impact on you, and you're going to become like that thing. If you worship the God of entertainment, you'll become shallow and trivial and frivolous. If you worship the God of mammon, you'll become materialistic and cold and devoid of passion. If you worship stone idols, you become hard and impervious. In fact, listen to what the psalmist says about idolaters. This is from Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. It's a description of the folly of idolatry. And notice what he says happens to idolaters. He writes, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have no mouths, or rather they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. Now, here's the key part. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who, so will everyone who trusts in them. And Psalm 135 says the same thing. Jeremiah 10, verse 8, idolaters are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine, Scripture says. The inevitable end of those who worship that which is dull-hearted and foolish and worthless is that they become dull-hearted and foolish and worthless as well. But by the same token, those who worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness begin to reflect that beauty and that holiness. Like Moses, whose face shone with God's glory, they are transformed into the likeness of that which they worship. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And here's 1 John 3.2, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him for we shall see him as he is. What John is saying is it's that unfettered and unclouded vision of the Lord's face in glory that is what will ultimately transfigure us instantly into his perfect likeness. The more clearly you see him, the more closely we begin to resemble him. But even as we see him now, even though it's, it's like we're only looking at a dim reflection through a bad mirror, we are being changed into that likeness, his likeness. And that is the inevitable effect of true worship. Now, listen to the very next verses in 1 John 3. After he says, when we see him, we'll be like him, because we see him just as he is. He says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, if you truly appreciate the holiness of God, 
There is no way you're not pursuing holiness in your own life. If you're not pursuing holiness in your own life, it's only because you don't really appreciate the holiness of God. How can we admire and adore God's holiness without wanting to purify ourselves, to be holy just as He is holy? And the answer is, you can't. We become like whatever we worship, and, and that is one of the great reasons it's so vital to, to meditate on God's holiness and, and to set His holiness in the forefront of our minds and our hearts, because according to Romans eight twenty nine, God has predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. And one of the chief means by which He shapes us into that likeness is by making His own holiness irresistibly sweet to us as we worship Him in the proper way. And the clearer our vision of God's holiness, the more perfectly we are being conformed to that image. And when I finally see His holiness in all its perfection, I will finally reflect that holiness as perfectly as any creature ever could. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In fact, let me close with this. In Zechariah 14, verses 20 and 21, he's looking forward to the fullness of the kingdom. The prophet says this, "...in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to Yahweh, and the pots in the houses of Yahweh will be like the bowls before the altar." In other words, they're all holy, they're all sacred. "...and every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to Yahweh of hosts." I want to be like one of those pots in the house of the Lord. In fact, we're compared to pottery in Scripture, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, we have this treasure, treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. In other words, you and I are nothing but clay in the hands of the divine potter who is omnipotent and who is shaping us into what He wants And our prayer should be, may He engrave His holiness on our hearts and minds and on our very faces so that we too will be holy to Yahweh of hosts like those pots in the Lord's house. That is not only the underlying lesson of the book of Leviticus, that's the great goal of the Christian life, and I hope it's your desire too. Pray with me. Lord, we live in an unholy world. Ours is an increasingly ungodly culture, and this is an era when even the people of God give very little thought to holiness. It's a wicked and perverse generation, and You have called us to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Your own special people, so that we might proclaim the praises of our Savior who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Redeem us from the unholy corruption that is all around us. Give us a thirst for holiness that overwhelms every worldly appetite and conform us to the perfect likeness of Your Holy Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.